Who are the Mountain Meisters? Committing to the goal and galvanizing you and your team behind that one single focus. Being at peace with that fear and being okay with it. You gain a real appreciation for your life and for what you have. Learn about their extreme lives on rock, snow, and ice five days a week with your hosts, Russell Wilcox and Ben Shank. Hello, Meister fans. Welcome to Mountain Meister. This is Russell. Hello, everyone. This is Ben. Russell, who do we have on the show today? Today we have Lindsay Mann. Lindsay is a senior guide for Rainier Mountaineering Incorporated in Pacific Alpine Guides. She guides mountaineering on Mount Rainier, McKinley, and is an avalanche instructor. Lindsay has a geology degree from Dartmouth College and in 2007 was part of the NCAA championship ski team. When she is not guiding, Lindsay lives in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, where she coaches alpine ski racing and enjoys backcountry skiing. Lindsay, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you for having me. Yeah, Lindsay, welcome. As Russell is saying, 2007 National Championship from Dartmouth. Congratulations on that. Oh, thanks. <laughs> so you you were going pretty fast down the hill, but now the majority of your job is going up the hill and taking people with you. How was the transition to that? <laughs> I think that you're not the only one that's surprised by that. <laughs> <laughs> um, basically, yeah, I grew up alpine ski racing my whole life, which meant that ever since I was 11 years old, I spent at least two weeks every summer on glaciated terrain. So I became interested in that academically. And my senior year of college traversed the Juneau ice field as part of my senior thesis. And that got me interested more in mountaineering and glaciated terrain and started to learn the skills that I needed to be a guide once I graduated college. That sounds like a really fun senior thesis. I know. Program. How'd you convince yeah. your professor? Oh, I'm just going to do some skiing. Don't worry about it. I'll, I'll do some research. You want to know worry. what Russell's senior thesis project was? He had to build a machine that detected flaws in sheets of metal. Which one sounds more exciting? I, I think that the sheets of metal sounds more exciting, but that's a pretty pretty close second. <laughs> Um, Thanks. <laughs> that, that's great, though. So what kind of research were you doing uh, in your undergrad studies then? I was doing mass balance research. So basically, we were looking at sites on the Juno ice field that they had previously taken data and uh, seeing how much snow was there basically related to the previous years. Basically looking at are the glaciers growing or shrinking over time. And what was your conclusion? Um, on the Juneau ice field, they're mostly shrinking. There was one glacier that was growing. Interesting. And is there a reason for that? Yeah, they think it's because it's at higher elevation. And so previously it was too cold to regularly snow up there. And so now with warmer temperatures, that specific glacier was getting more snow at higher elevation. And so it was growing. Too, wow. too cold for snow sounds miserable. <laughs> what, what's colder than snow? I don't know. That's crazy. Maybe it just doesn't precipitate or... Yeah. Well, anyway, as Russell also mentioned, you're a guide for RMI Rainier Mountaineering Incorporated. And I mean, they run trips all over the world. We're talking seven summits. Uh, you've done some guiding in Alaska. They go down to Aconcagua, Himalayas, Kilimanjaro, 
everywhere. And they teach climbing techniques and training. It's basically an all-inclusive suite. You can be a beginner, an expert. It seems like there's something for everyone. What do you specifically do for RMI, Lindsay? Um, so I've worked for RMI for six years now, like you said. I mostly guide on Mount Rainier, um, various routes on Rainier. And then I also usually do at least one McKinley expedition every year. And we talked a little bit about this before the show, and I was shocked at this number. I asked you, how many times have you <laughs> summited Mount Rainier? Yeah, so a lot of people keep really specific track, and I just know that mine's somewhere over 50. <laughs> Wow. And these are different groups every time, too. So what's been a very surprising group that you brought up to the top? So I volunteered for a climb last year, and my one of my supervisors here actually approached me, and a couple of the other guides that also work here were also volunteering for this climb, and it sounded interesting for me. And the climb itself is called Climbing Out of Homelessness. So it's basically a rehabilitation program in Seattle, and we got to climb Mount Rainier with people that were dealing with recovering from drug addiction problems and um, had previously been homeless. Wow. Had that ever been tried before? Or was this just your first experiment with it? Um, yeah. So I forget exactly how long the program's been going on, but I believe it's at least four or five years. And this guy, Mike Johnson, works for the rehab program based out of Seattle. And he had approached my boss, Alex Van Steen, at RMI a few years ago, and it was something that RMI wanted to be involved with, but that it had to be on a volunteer basis for our guides, which, you know, I was really happy to do, and it was a very different and unique experience for me. <laughs> what what makes it so different and rewarding? Um, I mean, basically, you're taking people that never thought that they would ever be in you know, the mountain environment <laughs> and had these unique stories about how they got there. You know, when I first met the girls and guys in this program, I was really intimidated by them. <laughs> um, but it was really cool because it became pretty clear that, you know, part of their program is they had been training for this climb for nine months. So just to get to the point where they could be at Mount Rainier, which meant that they had been sober for nine months and they had been going to all the trainings for nine months meant so much more to them than actually summoning just the fact that they could step onto the mountain and be a part of this team. So the camaraderie amongst our climbers was just crazy. You know, we felt like kind of outsiders coming in because they just had such a brotherhood and sisterhood and, you know, they were pretty intimidating and I know you guys can't see me, but I'm 5'4", 125 pounds, and here I am climbing with these big guys, you know, thinking initially, like, are they going to listen to me? <laughs> well, I bet at the end of the trip, after you gave them all this great information, they were pretty intimidated by you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't know if they were intimidated by me, but I will say they were some of the most respectful people that I'd ever climbed with and just so appreciative to be able to get this experience it was like every little thing they were just so excited about and you know I had a really great sense of humor so you mentioned that they did almost nine months of training that's leading awesome. up that's to this nice. yeah that's do you awesome. think that this training prepared them enough where they actually felt comfortable in the mountain or were they actually very uncomfortable still 
Um, I mean, some of them were still a little bit out of their element. <laughs> but yeah, I think the training that they did, they had, you know, they would go on runs around Seattle. They took advantage of the fact that they were based out of Seattle and would hike up the snow field a couple times before the actual climb itself. So I would say that, you know, they were prepared physically, but they were also prepared to work really well as a team and were just so supportive of each other as teammates that I think that component really helped them as well. What a great idea of a way to get people out of this hole that they're in, right? And you give them this task and really, I mean, they have no choice to return back to their addictions, right? Because if they return back, they can't even summit Rainier, right? They can't climb the mountain physically if they return back to their drug addiction. So I think it's really cool to give them this goal and have them work towards something. And that kind of gives them an extra incentive. Yeah. And I think, well, one of the guys summed it up really well. He was like, you know, we're addicts, so we need something. And now we're addicted to climbing mountains. And so I've kept in in touch with a couple of the guys that we climbed with. And uh, they're still climbing peaks. A group of them went and climbed Mount Adams um, like a month after we had climbed Rainier. So I think that's the most rewarding part for me is that I was influential in helping to keep them in the mountains too. That's awesome. Yeah, it's really cool that you did that. And this isn't what you're doing most of the time. So no. <laughs> and before we get into that, I want to talk a little bit about a problem that I've noticed in generic mountaineering. And I call these types of people cocktail climbers. And basically, <laughs> wait, hold on. Before, before you go, I want to see if Lindsay can guess what can you, you mean by okay. a cocktail climber. I mean, the only thing I can guess is that they, they use like, I, I'm actually just really not sure. Okay. Right. <laughs> they talk about climbing over cocktails. Wow. Exactly. Very good. <laughs> yeah. They, they talk about it. They're, oh, you know, we're going to go up to Everest. It's going to be awesome. And then they like cheers and they're like, let's do it. And then two weeks later, they're like on Everest. They didn't do any training. And then there's a big avalanche and their guide gets wiped away and they have no more guide. And they're basically, they freeze to death. Mm -hmm. Or there are these really bad things that can happen because they haven't physically and mentally prepared completely. Mm -hmm. So you can tell anyone if you want to use that uh, term. I Someone's probably said it before, cocktail climber. But. Maybe uh, subconsciously. But Russell, you do coin terms on a daily basis. So, <laughs> so anyways, talk, talk a little bit about the types of preparation that you should be doing with types of mountains like Mount Rainier. And obviously, they can just get scaled up from there. A lot of people that do larger Himalayan peaks actually train at Mount Rainier. So it's definitely a good place to start. So where would that training start? Yeah. So, I mean, we definitely recognize as guides that, you know, my lifestyle revolves around being in the mountains and that's not the reality for all of the people that we climb with. So I think it's important for people that do have a more typical lifestyle, I guess I would say, Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, you know, is getting in some endurance training. So obviously running is great, any type of endurance stuff, but also training with a pack. I know that I climbed with my dad and he had to be in New York City a couple of weeks before he was coming out to Rainier. So he climbed as many stairs as he could carrying a 40 pound pack, which basically he just (laughs) filled a bunch of water jugs and put them in his pack. (laughs) And I think the important part too, if that's how you do end up training is doing some sort of stairs or 
whatnot is that I think the most common thing that we see is people forget to train for the way downhill. So they mentally just think about getting to the top and they forget that they almost have to get off the mountain. And I think for us as guides, you know, obviously the number one thing is getting back home safely. And so remembering that training downhill, both mentally and physically, is an important part of the training. But I think switching it up to endurance stuff, having a strong core, and being creative about your training is very important. <laughs> so the downhill part that you mentioned, how are you normally descending the mountains? I mean, you know, we go down the same route typically that we go up. Um, and I think it's just, you know, there's a lot of efficiency techniques that we teach our climbers um, to use on the way up, like the rest step, which I'm sure a lot of people have heard of. Could you explain the rest step, actually? Yeah, I'll do my best. Okay. Yeah, it's hard sometimes <laughs> without over audio. A visual, but okay. yeah, the rest step is a stance where you have your lower leg straight and then your upper leg is bent. So all of your body weight is resting on your skeletal system hmm. instead of on your muscles, actually. And then it's just a quick step to that next rest stance. So all your weights on that lower leg, resting more on your skeletal system, a nice small step. Basically, so that you're just saving as much energy as you can on the way up and getting a little bit of a rest with each step. Very interesting. So you are putting more pressure on your skeletal system and saving your muscles for the endurance. Basically. Yeah, and essentially saving your muscles for the way down. Right. Um, because on the way down, you know, you can't really, you don't want to lock out your you legs. Can do the right or, step on the way down. <laughs> you know, you just can't do it. And you can, so it's a lot harder. You can harder. try and you'll dislocate your knee. But <laughs> right. Um, so it's a lot harder to just walk down. <laughs> so, I mean, you mentioned, was it your father that was training? He was climbing up and yeah. down stairs and he had this backpack <laughs> full of water. How, how do these people know that the training is going to be appropriate for the type of trip that they're going to do? Because they probably never been to that location. That's probably why they're going there. Unless if it's you where you're a guide and you're going there 50 times. So you know exactly what it's like, but do you recommend for the person that wants to go climb up Rainier to work with a uh, guiding company like you, even on the training aspect too, or is it just looking on the internet, following some other sort of guidelines? So we actually do on our website, we have a specific training and fitness tab um, on our website underneath the blog. And there, there's a lot of good training tips. Um, and it's a variety of training tips. It's tips for, you know, people that have a more regular lifestyle. So a desk job, nine to five. And then there's also interspersed in there is some of the training specifically that we guides do. So I think that's one of the best tool that our climbers can use. My dad, actually, after he was training, he also wrote a blog piece on there about the training that he did because we I'm from New England and he spent a lot of time training in New Hampshire and so some hikes that he did that he felt adequately prepared him for Mount Rainier and his progression so I think that's the best resource that we have specifically for our RMI climbers 
Very cool. Yeah, we'll post that resource on our website. Now we want to move on to a recent trip that you just got back from, actually, Lindsay, two weeks ago, a trip to Alaska. And you had planned with three other women, am I correct? Yeah, three other girls. So it's a girls trip. And you guys are going (laughs) to Alaska to ascend and descend University Peak, which had been done very few times before by women, if I'm not mistaken. No, I don't think any women had done it before. Yeah. A few times by people in general. People in general. And what happened? I mean, you're flying past the peak, and what do you see? Yeah, so this was a trip I was really excited about. My friend Sheldon initially approached me about this trip, and basically we mostly ski with guys and spend time with We have male ski partners Mm -hmm. and she's a ripping skier, really good climber. And she was like, I want to ski University Peak and I would love to do it with you, which first off, I was psyched that she asked me to go on this trip. And so everything came together. We flew up to Alaska with our team of four and we had heard that it probably wasn't in and we had been getting information from various people ahead of time. But yeah, we talked to the pilot. Um, when he picked us up, because you, you know, fly into the mountains there and flew by the peak. And it was pretty clear that it was not skiable at that point and that it was not even possible or didn't make sense for us to land at the base of University Peak and even try and get on it. But luckily, we were prepared for that. We had a couple backup plans and so we were able to land in a different zone in the Wrangell St. Elias range which offered some great ski mountaineering possibilities and had great weather and an absolutely great trip. So it sounds like a really cool experience but you must have learned from some past experience to always have a backup plan because for, <laughs> yeah. for me I think about that. Oh, I got to do this. I'm not even thinking about anything else. <laughs> Did you ever learn from I'm any doing other this thing, rain or shine? <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> it's like whether I'm skiing on dirt or snow. <laughs> but had you ever learned from any previous experiences, or is this just something that was ingrained in you? Uh, I mean, I think that just the more time you spend in the mountains, you realize that there's so many factors that you can't control, like weather, snow conditions, and that you just don't want to get stuck into thinking about one thing. You know, obviously when you're climbing a peak like Rainier or Mount McKinley, you're much more specifically, you know, goal oriented. You want to get as high as you safely can on that peak. Um, And for this trip to the Wrangell St. Elias range, we did have the luxury of, you know, if this isn't going to happen, then we can go somewhere else where we can get some really cool ski mountaineering in. But we did talk to the pilot, and uh, hopefully they're going to put us on speed dial for the future <laughs> when University Peak is in. <laughs> uh-huh. Excellent. Well, it sounds like it was a, a good decision that you made. So why hasn't this peak been descended by women before? What makes it difficult? Uh, there's a lot of things. <laughs> um, so I don't know if you guys are familiar with the book, 50 Classic Ski Descents. I I read about it. Yeah, so it's a book that Chris Davenport and Penn Newhart both were involved with a couple years ago. And on the cover of that is University Peak. Um, And so if you get a chance to look at it, one, it's pretty intimidating to look at. (laughs) 
Um, but it's steep. It's really steep snow climbing. Um, it's sustained 55 degrees for something like 7,000 feet. Oh, my God. Wow. <laughs> I thought that snow didn't even really stay on something that <laughs> steep. Holy cow. Well, that's part of the reason I think that it's not in the condition to ski that frequently. Wow. <laughs> so, so that's the biggest crux is that it's, you know, it's not a peak that the conditions are appropriate for it to be skied every year. So that's one reason it hasn't been skied that much. And then the Wrangell St. Elias range is just that range. It's harder to access and it's expensive to be totally <laughs> frank with you guys to get in there. Mm. Um, and logistics are a little bit more difficult. So, you know, we were really lucky that we had help from outdoor research and La Sportiva and 40 Below and Smith and Mammut, a handful of sponsors really helped to make it possible for us to go and explore in this range. I think if I was going to do that, I'd want a sled. I, well, <laughs> sled. Yeah, right. Um, I, think I don't I'd, know that you'd want a sled. <laughs> has anyone ever tried skiing with just a rope attached to them? And oh, so if they fall, so you're almost like rappelling while you're skiing and then you just keep a lot of slack or is that just completely ridiculous? Yeah, I mean, we as guides learn a lot of different techniques that if, you know, you get into a spot either with your partner or you know, someone that you're guiding, that you can put a rope on them and actually belay them down, you know, either you're just lowering them or, you know, they make a turn and you give them more rope. It's just not as fun to ski that way, <laughs> but at times it, I guess, is more appropriate for the terrain. <laughs> I mean, you got 55 degrees for 7,000 feet. If you fall down that I, I just like well we went to, to we went to Tuckerman's yeah, and uh, you've probably been there uh, being from oh, yeah. New England right yeah I had a, a great story from Tuckerman's well, <laughs> how, how steep right after Russell's how steep son. do you think that is uh, like the head wall I mean I think the steepest part of Tuckerman's is like forty five degrees right exactly so, so for and, our listeners if somebody falls down the head wall of Tuckerman's Ravine at forty five degrees they slide all the way to the basin of they the, don't they're, well, they're falling yeah they're falling they're going all the way down pretty fa probably faster or as fast as if they were skiing exactly. just flying down that's ridiculous so at 55 degrees for 7,000 feet just picture <laughs> what would happen there I don't want to discourage you from doing this trip Lindsay I just want people <laughs> to be aware and anyway I would love to hear your Tuckerman's Ravine story Oh, yeah. So the first time I skied Tuckerman's, I was 13 years old and I went up with my ski team. I skied at Waterville Valley in New Hampshire. I got to the top of what we were going to ski and promptly dropped my ski oh. from the top of Tuckerman's. Just, just one ski? <laughs> just one ski. And it was great. So on this trip to Alaska, Sheldon and I were going up to have this, you know, big day, ski something steep. And I looked at her and I was like, hey, I'm pretty nervous about what we're going to ski. And she was like, okay, well, what, what are you nervous about? And I was like, I'm scared that I'm going to get to the top of this and drop my ski. <laughs> and she was like, so let me get this straight. You're not nervous about like the steep climbing that we're going to do. You're not nervous about the fact that you might be, you know, you can't fall in this terrain right on the way yeah. down. You're nervous that you're going to drop yeah. your ski. And I was like, yep. And she was like, well, we can manage that pretty easily. Like if we need to, I can just lower you, you know, the entire way. And I was like, yeah, you know, I just needed to get it out there. I know it's ridiculous and we can handle it. But yeah, that's what I'm nervous about today. <laughs> Traumatized. By your and it all, yeah, I think it all stems from that first trip to Tuckerman's. <laughs> so were you one of those skiing prodigies that just said, screw it, I'm going to go <laughs> down ski. with one ski down the head wall? <laughs> 
You know, I wish I could say that, uh, but <laughs> my ski coach was actually really nice and he skied down and hiked up with my ski and I just sat there. So it's wow. not like a hero story. I just sat there and didn't do anything. <laughs> what a nice guy. Yeah, he was great. So we want to move on to the next part of our conversation. And that's something that our listeners absolutely love. Because you're an expert in guiding and skiing, we want you to give our listeners a gear recommendation. Yeah, so I thought a lot about this, and uh, I think that mountaineering boots are kind of the piece of gear that helps you to get in the mountains more. If you own your own boots, your feet are the most comfortable. And so the boots that I like to use for mountaineering on Rainier and up in Alaska is the La Sportiva Spantic. The Spantic, I don't think we've... We had the Explorer for a more modest boot, but yeah, um, yeah, that's a first. Great, Great recommendation. A lot of people always talk about boots as their their number one piece of gear. And they always say, make sure you go in, you, you get a good fitting. Because mm-hmm. if your boots just don't fit, you're pretty much screwed you're no miserable. matter what you do. Yeah. You get blistered. I'm sure you're a client. Do you run into that a lot, guiding, where people just have their feet destroyed halfway through the trip? Yeah, we really do. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that, you know, that relates to a couple things. I think the biggest way to, you know, take care of your feet in the mountains too is to just focus on your footwork and how you're actually placing your feet. And that can help sometimes with blisters. But, you know, also, you know, if you're using rental boots, a lot of times your feet can get chewed up. So I recommend to my climbers that if they are going to purchase one piece of gear and think that they're going to be frequent visitors into the mountains, then getting a good pair of boots that fit well is very important because you'll be a lot happier. <laughs> yeah. In your guiding career, do you have any pet peeves for the people that you're taking on the trip? Is there anything that just really annoys you sometimes? Like what's the worst case scenario for somebody that you're guiding? I think actually the thing that there's like one specific comment that I find really interesting that okay. I tend to get a lot is you went to Dartmouth College. What are you doing being a guide? <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> and what do your parents think? <laughs> wow. It's kind of a bold question, really. <laughs> it really is. And I think that part of the reason, like a lot, of, you know, I went to a liberal arts college and they taught me that I can basically kind of do whatever I want and be creative to do whatever I want. So I've like specifically chosen to be a guide. You know, it didn't happen by accident. And my parents are very proud of me and my dad's psyched that he has a daughter that can guide him <laughs> for free. Yeah. yeah. And if any of these people actually know what Dartmouth is like, I mean, it's a huge ski community too. We had another alum of Dartmouth College on the show, uh, Lisa Ballard, and she just went in a completely different direction too. And she's very focused yeah. on skiing. And I mean, it actually makes more sense if you think about it. Anyone else that's thinking about, you know, I went to this this college and it, I had all these, quote, expectations. It's just, I don't know. Interesting. Interesting thing. So we want to finish up with one final thought. You have all this expertise in the mountaineering world and in climbing world. So I'd like to have you give our listeners one kind of knockout punch of why they need to go on one of these trips. Ooh. And I know you're very biased on Mount Rainier now, but... How do we know what mountain is the best fit for them? Oh, that's a good question. So to answer the question of what mountain is the best fit for you, 
I think that there are so many answers. I mean, I think that just picking a place to start out with that you're excited about and then reading up on the climb and Mount Rainier might not be the perfect first climb for you, but, you know, peaks in the North Cascades or just anywhere that you're excited about that you can try it out. And then just starting to get educated on it, too. We do programs of just one-day mountaineering schools and crevasse rescue schools, which are a little bit of our sampler programs so people can test it out and learn some skills on their own and maybe see if this is an environment that they enjoy being in. I like that, the sampling. And so why do they <laughs> why do they have to go on one of these trips? It's a really cool environment. I mean, watching the sunrise in the morning, you know, after you've been climbing all night is a pretty magical and rewarding experience. Um, but I think you just learn a lot about yourself in the mountains. I can't say it's fun all the time, <laughs> but <laughs> I think that typically people look back on it and, you know, the camaraderie that you build in the mountains, even though... You're only climbing, you know, as someone on these trips as you spend three or four days, you know, with this group of people. But you build really strong camaraderie with that team that you're with. And it's memories that you remember forever. And I just think that the mountains are a really special place. And you discover a lot about yourself when you're in the mountains. For our listeners, you can find out more about RMI at www.rmiguides.com. Lindsay has a whole profile on there. You can find out more about today's episode on our website, mtnmeister.com, under Lindsay's Meister profile page. It was awesome having you today, Lindsay. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you for having me. It was great talking to you guys. Meister fans, no Russell again today, just me. He's finishing up the last week in his road trip. If you'd like to see pictures of what he's doing, he's been sporadically uploading them to Instagram. Check it out, at mountainmeister, spelled out. Also, we didn't ask Lindsay if she uses Acclimate, but we did have the creator of it on our show. If you caught episode number 53 with Rowan Houck, we discussed acclimatization and the creation of her sport drink called Acclimate. If you'd like a chance to win a tub of Acclimate, you can do something really simple to win. We just want to see where you listen to this podcast. We're curious. Are you on a hike? Are you driving to work? Are you exercising? Send us a picture. You can tweet us it. You can upload to Facebook. You can tag us in an Instagram post, whatever you want. And I'll pick the best one and send you a free tub. Rohan sent us over some sample packets and I tried the mountain grape the other day. It is tasty. So send us those pictures for a chance to win. Oh yeah, join us tomorrow on the show when we have Emily Harrington. Emily is one of the elite female rock climbers in the world, one of the best. We talked to her about her lifestyle as a professional rock climber, all the different disciplines. It's a really interesting conversation. I think you guys are going to like this one. Join us then.